In two weeks, I'm going to start on a series on the seven deadly sins. As I said last week, I haven't studied them myself. And uh, I said it would be good to study. And the reason I want to do this study with us as a church is based on two things that I believe I can speak strongly on. The first one is, in our society today in America, if you're a visitor from another country or another planet, especially when it comes to election time, there are two things we debate heatedly. And when you hear sometimes Christians become passionate on some of the issues in society, those two things keep coming up. And those two sins that we almost fight over, uh, the sin of homosexuality and abortion. Now, Scripture calls both of them sin, so I'm not going to talk more about it, but here's my point. Sometimes we're only obsessed about those two sins. And I don't hear a conversation, whether in the world or in the church, talking about other sins like pride. How about gluttony? We don't talk about it. In fact, if you look, and I was thinking about it this past week, sometimes I think what has happened in our society is we've actually taken some of these things and we've made it look very nice. Let me give you an example. Look at the TV shows that are there today, and I would suggest to you that some of them have made an in, in a profit industry on some of these sins. The other day I was watching, uh, what's it called? Uh, extreme couponing. I'm fascinated by that. I don't have the patience to cut a few coupons. And here's this lady who went to the grocery store. Her grocery list that came up cost her $1,080. And guess how much she paid? $8.40. The rest were all coupons. Amazing. She spends about 10, 15 hours a day. That says it all. But here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Sounds interesting, intriguing. Let me ask you, is hoarding beyond what you need a sin? I'm going to say yes. Greed. So, I want to broaden the whole concept of sin. And when we talk about sin, next few weeks we're not talking of people in the world. As someone said, when you throw dirt on others... Not only do you get your own hands dirty, but you lose a little of your ground. So I want to invite you to look at the concept of sin and that too in your own heart. And I'll do it for myself in my own heart. The second thing I believe what's happened is, especially those of us who are in the Christian faith... We've lost the sensitivity to sin. 
we have learned so much about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God that we excuse a lot of sin in our own life. And what do I mean by losing the sensitivity? I remember the first time, I'm an immigrant, 25 years in the country. I was watching the news one evening, and I remember so clearly it was in the den, the basement den, and there was a television there, and I heard a news about somewhere in New Jersey, a kid was shot to death on the road. And I remember my reaction. I stood there frozen, shocked that an innocent child had lost his life. Today, I hear the same thing, and I flip channels. I don't stop to think, who must have been that child's mother? What is it going to do to their family? What's gone wrong with me? That the murder, death, random shootings have stopped bothering me. I know it's wrong, but I've lost my sensitivity to sin. I'm going to suggest to you this morning, very respectfully, that some of us don't call sin sin in your life. And then when you do come anywhere to calling it sin, we blame it on others. So I hope for your own sake in this coming weeks, uh, you'll be truthful to yourself and God. Why are we talking about sin? Because we saw in the book of Hebrews last week, without holiness, no one can see God. God is a holy God, and he's not going to compromise his natures just to make it easy on you and I. And what he desires for us is, uh, you want to get to know God? You want to see God work in your life? Easy. Christ can make it possible, but you have to deal with the issue of sin. And it's not how much of the Bible you know that eventually is going to make a difference. Oh, you should get to know the Bible. It's whether you obey the word of God. Not just be a listener, but a doer of the word. You're with me? That's why we have to go to God's word. Because God's word does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And I just want to take it easy. In fact, this morning I'm going to preach predominantly about sin. And I'm going to tell you, you're actually going to feel pretty good about yourself. So breathe normally. Don't let your muscles tense up. Relax. I'm actually going to tell you it's not your fault. So if you think the pastor's talking about sin and he's going to hit you, no, he's actually going to tell you you're a nice person. It's not your fault. So we're going to blame it on other people this morning, but we'll take it a step at a time. So here's my sermon title for this morning, and I'm telling you from the Word of God that we, all of us, including me, are sinful people. I didn't say it. God said it. Now your question is, is it all that bad? Oh, it is very bad. And if you want an image in your mind, it's like a ball and chain on your feet. You're tied to it. You're only going to go as far as sin takes you. You cannot break that chain by yourself. So, pretend you have this chain on your leg. It is weighing you down. It will destroy your life. 
Because that is what sin does. That's what Satan does. He comes to destroy and to kill. And the way he works it is through sin in your and my life. You and I will never understand how bad sin is unless you understand how holy God is. You know what typically all of us do, including myself? Uh, Very easy for me to consider myself as a nice guy. Oh, I know I'm a horrible guy, but I can still argue for the point I'm still a nice guy. You know how I do it? I compare myself to other people. I compare myself to a murderer, a drug dealer, a molester, and I say, oh, I'm not as bad as him. What do I end up feeling? I feel like a good guy compared to someone else. But that's the mistake. There's only one person you can compare yourself to, and that is to a holy God. And when you compare yourself to a holy God, you know what Scripture tells us? It says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I'm glad we're a team. It would be horrible to be the only sinful guy in church this morning. I wouldn't come. I wouldn't come with all you nice people. But tell me there's a bunch of sinners. Oh, yeah. We'll hang out together. Uh, My hope this morning and through the weeks to come is that you will not be embarrassed to self-confess yourself as a sinner. I've I've grown up in the church, and one of the things that tires me out is people who are trying to make themselves look good. Especially in the church. I so very rarely hear people shamelessly telling other people I'm a sinner. And the older you be in the faith, we feel bad to say we are sinners. And I don't understand why. But I'm hoping you would reach a point in your walk with Jesus where you're not embarrassed to tell even a stranger you are a wretched person. You stink. You're sick. Try doing it. It is, you know, it does you a lot of, it's self-therapeutic to go out and tell someone that you are you stink in, this, in the nostrils of God. That's what God says. So, why do I say that's important? Do you know when an alcoholic or an addict turns on the road to recovery? Any, anyone who's been an addict or had a problem with some addiction? You're probably embarrassed if you were. I'm sorry? Thank you. Did you hear what Jason said? It's not when you stop doing your drugs or your alcohol. Your road to recovery is the day you decide that you have a problem. Other people can tell you, but when you confess to God and to yourself, I have a problem, uh, you are on the road to recovery. When you reach a point where you can tell yourself, you don't need to tell anybody else, when you can tell yourself and God, I am a sinful person, there is hope that comes to you. I was driving down, I think it was on Monday evening, after visiting Teresa Foley at the 
emergency room. And coming down Frankfurt Avenue, I saw a board out there. I looked at it and then I turned away. It's a board that many of you probably have seen at different places. It says, one out of five children in America goes to bed hungry. And I looked away. Because I was at a traffic light, I looked at it again. And it said, one out of five children in America is hungry. And I suddenly realized, you know, if I ignore that that is true, I can drive on. But if that is the truth, do you think we have a responsibility? If you know that in your neighborhood there is someone who's sleeping in the car on this cold winter day, do you have a response? Allow the person to come shower? Give them a hot meal? It's a re- you don't have to answer that question. The answer is yes. So what is the easiest way not to do anything, whether it be about sin or needs in the world? Don't look at it. Ignore it. And so I'm suggesting to you, one of the ways you'll take sin seriously in your life is by knowing that God is holy. Left to you and I, if we self-define sin, we'll all look pretty good. But if God is holy... The imperative is we are sinful and then we have to do something about it. So an introduction to why are we looking at it and the fact in the sight of God, you and I look rotten. Let's do an exercise. I want you to imagine an apple. Okay? Green apple, red apple, the choice is yours this morning. But imagine an apple. You ready? Imagined? How would you like that? That looks sick, isn't it? You know, when I googled the word putrid and I wanted an image, can I tell you that is the nicest thing I could put up on a Sunday morning? There are other ones that had worms coming out of it. What's my point? A holy God looks at all of us, including me, and says, you not only stink, you're wretched, you're no good at looking at. Not because God doesn't love us. Don't get me wrong. God loves you. And we'll talk more about it. But what he hates in you and I is the sin that we have. I'm going to lift your spirits up a bit. I told you I'm going to make you feel good. Okay, hang on to that. I just want to make a couple of points this morning. And the first one is, it's God who's determined that all are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. I know some of you have done this. I have done it till last week. And I'm not going to do it again. I have often explained Romans 3.23 that says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, to make it easily understood to people, I have always explained to people, because I always think people don't understand glory, 
when I talk to someone who's not of the faith, I've always told them uh, what it really means is that we've fallen short of God's standard. Any of you said that? Fallen short of God's standard. Do you know that I just realized it's not fair to the Word of God to narrow it down to a standard? Because a standard is something that you try to achieve up. This is more specific and very interesting. It says, our sin has made us fall short of God's perfect glory. Why is that significant? And I'm, I'm going to do a couple of detours this morning. Uh, those of you who love to think and meditate on how many angels can dance on a pinhead, and you can endlessly argue, this is meant for you. The rest of us enjoy it. Now, you know in Isaiah chapter 42, and I'm working with the word glory. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 says, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. You remember that verse? God says, I am the Lord, that's my name. I'm not going to share my glory with anyone. Fair enough, right? There is only one God. He is holy. He is unique. And he says, I'm not going to share my glory with anyone. Now, fast forward to the Gospel of John. John chapter 17. You remember when Jesus was praying the high priestly prayer? Very interestingly, this is a, this is a conversation between Jesus and the Father. We happen to eavesdrop on it. And we listen to Jesus praying. Listen to what Jesus prays in John 17, 22. Jesus says, the glory that you, the Father, have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Okay, so you have one verse in Isaiah that says, God will not share his glory with anyone. And then Jesus comes to the earth and says, Father, I am giving them my glory. And he says, so that they may be one. What's happening here? I think both are absolutely correct. God will not share his unique position as God to be worshipped with anybody else. He has the right to it. He's not going to share it with me. But what he does do is, once you become a child of God, he's willing to share his glory off you, into you, to display him. Why do I think that's possible? You remember when Moses came down from the mountaintop. Scripture tells us his face shone with what? The glory of God. So much so, he had to wear a veil. He was radiating the glory of God. So, let me bring this, as I said, it's a little bit of a detour, but I want you to get excited about what God can do in your life. Do you know that you are an extremely, uniquely special person in the sight of God? Why? You are created in the image of God. Why are we talking about sin and holiness? Because 
you and I are created in the image of God. In other words, divinity is sealed on us. There's a poster print on you and I that make us in the image of God. That's why we're different from all other creation. And so when God does this work of sanctification, that's basically clean up, changing us into the image of Christ, what starts to happen is God shares his glory with us. Not that we will start to be worshipped. We don't become mini-gods. But we reflect the radiance of God's glory. That's why I'm going to stick to we have fallen short of the glory of God because God is restoring for his glory to radiate through us. I find that fascinating. I need to share that with you because some of us need to get excited of who we are in Christ. Some of us who have known Christ have lost the joy and the thrill of belonging to him. We've gotten so busy doing things for God that we sometimes derive our satisfaction in what we do and not who we are in Christ. So created, you and I are created for the glory of God. Let me give you some bad news this morning. We're going to do bad news, good news, good news. Okay? For ba- the bad news, for starters, we're talking about sin. Most of us know that if you do something wrong, it's sin. And I'm not going to spend time trying to tell you what are the things wrong. If you are a moderately thinking person, you know that you say things, you do things, you think things, and whatever you do is wrong. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So folks, very simply, if you've ever said anything bad, if you've done anything wrong, if you've thought anything, hey, you've sinned. Agreed? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Kevin. By the end of the service, they're all going to agree with God's word. No. Here's the other one that most of us are not aware of. James chapter 4 verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him, it is sin. Let me broaden the definition of sin. It's not only things that you do that are wrong, that are sin. It's things that you knew you should be doing and you didn't do. If you didn't do it, you just sinned. I can give you a very good example from this week, thanks to all the snow out there. If you live in a neighborhood and you have an elderly couple or an elderly lady whose driveway has not been done because the poor lady cannot do her own driveway. And you saw it, and you're an able-bodied person, and it crossed your mind, it wouldn't hurt me to do that. And even as it crossed your mind, you said, ah, can't do it, let me go home. If you didn't do that driveway, guess what you did? You sinned. If you knew that something good needs to be done and you didn't do it, Scripture calls it sin. You saw someone cold outside and you didn't do anything about it. Didn't even bother to have a conversation with this person. You didn't, couldn't be nice to this person. You sinned. I could go through a list of things. Uh, in your own home, 
If you could have done something for someone else and you didn't do it, and you thought no one's going to know about it, guess what? You sinned. I want you to know how prevalent sin is. And the problem with some of us in our churches is we stopped using the word sin and we took the edge of sin. So we define it by, ah, didn't do a good thing, a bad thing. And as long as you change vocabulary, it gets easier to live with, isn't it? It doesn't feel all that bad. It doesn't hit you and you say, oh, I did a bad thing. How about saying I did a sinful thing? Which sounds, sounds harsher? The last one. So that's why I'm hoping is we would not be in denial. We'll call sin, sin. And I hope you realize very broadly there are two categories. And God says, if you are this kind of a person, I hope that picture of that apple sticks in your mind. That's how God views you and I. Which brings me to my third point for this morning, and that is, and this is where you're going to feel good. Breathe again. I can look at some of you feeling horrible and saying, oh, I know he's talking about me. No, I don't know your sin. I don't want to know your sin. I have enough sins to deal with. But breathe easily. Because the first one I'm going to tell you this morning, it's not your fault. Yeah, I said it. It's not your fault. You know whose fault it is? Adam. Let me read to you just one part of Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Romans chapter 5, verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And I'm going to stop there. You know what scriptures tells us? When Adam, the first man, sinned, he set in motion for all of us to be sinners. When we all get to heaven one day, let's gang up on this guy. I want to meet this fellow. Made life miserable for the rest of us. Okay? So there are a couple. Of, do you have a list of people you want to see in heaven? I want to meet Peter. You know why? I am so much like him. He's so much like him. He's got the foot in the mouth disease. Opens his mouth, insert foot. But he's always, he had a passion for the Lord. He loved God. So, so first declaration the reason you're sinful, I'm presuming you've agreed with me that you're sinful, uh, it's not your fault. Adam is the one to blame. Because of one man's disobedience, Scripture says, we're all sinners. Feeling good? Let me make it even better for you this morning. It's not your fault. You didn't even have a chance. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You want another person to blame? Blame your mom. Uh, now, some people have taken this scripture passage and distorted it by saying that means sex is sin. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying that when we came into this world in conception, again, do you want to know when life begins? There are a lot of scripture passages on when does life begin. And here's one. It says, uh, in sin did my mother conceive me. So life does not become after you come out of the womb. Life begins in the womb. But the point here this morning is, even as you were conceived 
you had the DNA of sin written all over you. So, what scripture tells us is, the odds were stacked heavily against us. And so, before we go any further, I want to deal, I not only want to teach you the word of God, I want you to think biblically. Can I do that with you this morning? Uh, So, I've made the point this morning that when you were conceived in your mother's womb, you had a DNA imprint of Adam, the first man who sinned. That DNA imprint on you prejudiced you towards, towards all kinds of sin. You're with me? So here's my question to you. There's a debate in society today, and you've heard it, that some people are born a particular way. So we are oriented towards certain sinful natures. Uh, Let's say you're a kleptomaniac. You love to shoplift. And guess what? You've been doing it from early childhood. And no one can figure out why do you, who've been raised in a good family, have this tendency to this kind of a sin. And you meet with some psychotherapist or someone somewhere, and the guy says, you know what? Uh, You were born that way. On sexuality, that's where most of this conversation takes place, there is a very strong argument that says some people are born sexually towards a certain orientation. Why do I bring that up? I think it's very relevant. It is relevant not only in the area of sexuality, but all sin. So here's where I think some of us go wrong. I've heard Christians argue against that point of saying, no, you're not born that way. It's a choice. Do you know I have no problem saying you're born that way? Basically because we're conceived in sin, we have a DNA of sin, and it's quite possible you're born to sin. It doesn't defeat the argument of sin. Because how you're born, what you're disposed to, doesn't define what sin is. Sin is defined by what's in the Word of God. If the Word of God calls something sin, then to me, the cause, the origin, the why, who to blame, is a moot issue. But here's the good news. The definition of sin is found in the Word of God. Forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. That's why I don't, I don't spend too much time in my own life or in the life of others trying to figure out people's sin. It's irrelevant. If you know you're a sinner, then the question is, do something about it. If you know one in five Americans is dying out of hunger, do something about it. Why? Let the politicians figure out why are they, is it because they don't work, is it because... Who cares? If you're hungry, you're hungry. If you want to find a job, let's figure out how to find a job and stop worrying about why didn't you have a job. That's the work of politicians. So my point is, once you know you're a sinner, the sin in your life, do something about it. Get off that argument of why, who to blame. Uh, You got the point. But here's where I want to bring you to. Scripture talks about sin 
not to condemn you. Scripture talks about sin so that you'd be drawn to Jesus Christ who can do something about it. Do you know, that's why the topic of sin is a good conversation because it leads to the good news. If you only talk about sin, it's bad news. And I hope you don't get so caught up with other people's sin that you don't offer them the good news. So, irrespective of your background, irrespective of what causes you to sin today, and I know, I know some of you have hard life circumstances. And let me speak to you respectfully, kindly, and generously. You sometimes can't do about what life's lot has given you. Some of life is consequences to your sin, but sometimes you're put in life situations that you didn't ask for, but it is life. The question and the challenge for you this morning is, what are you going to do about it? You can't do anything about yesterday, can you? But you can do something about today. And who do you turn to? That's the key. We can talk endlessly about sin and our wretchedness, but do you know that leads you nowhere? It's almost like in some Eastern traditions, it's called gazing at your navel. That inward looking can only take place so long. It doesn't take you anywhere. After a while, you probably need to stop looking in, look up to Christ. And so I do want to look at ourselves in the sight of a holy God and say, we're talking about sin, but our purpose is eventually to fall into the arms of Jesus Christ. So sin has a role to play, and the problem, my friends, is much worse than you think. You remember I asked the question, man is sinful, is it really bad? Yeah, it's really bad. It is horrible. It is death. Initially, I had said, you know, it's not just the things that you think, it's the things that you do. And the reason it's really bad is because Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know anything about it? The heart is deceitful about above all things, and desperately sick. Now, I know we live in a generation where the younger generation, they see something nice and they say, oh, that's sick. No, I'm not talking of that sick. I'm talking of the classical sick where it's really bad and there's no hope. And Jeremiah says, you know, you're in my heart. is not only wicked, it's pathetically sick. I wonder how you consider yourself this morning. How do you consider your heart? Can I tell you how wicked this means? Let's make me the target. This morning when I came, uh, I noticed that the two entryways had snow on it, so I just looked for a shovel. And one of the things I'm good at is I will volunteer people who didn't ask to be volunteered. So I saw two young, able-bodied, hey, called you young, I know, 
I saw Chris Quinn and Caleb. I said, hey, could you grab a shovel, get a bit of salt, let's do this. And in about less than seven minutes, we cracked. We did both the walkways. And a couple of people thanked us. Now, you know, I'm going to the part of how wicked the heart is. Why did I do that? Do you know? I don't know. I don't trust my heart. Why do I call myself a pastor? Why do I preach? Why do I try to serve the Lord? I would like to think it's because I love God and people and I want to serve Him. But I'll quickly say, I don't know the motives behind my own heart. It could be self-serving. It could be because I get some attention. What's my point? You cannot trust your own heart. And before you credit yourself as a nice, godly person, I hope your default is, I'm a wretched person first. Don't be in denial. Because if you're in denial, you will not need the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you know your wretchedness, you will appreciate the grace of God. And I think the reason some of us who have known Christ for a long time, our faith has grown cold, we're not enthusiastic, life seems boring, the faith seems... is because you've lost the joy of knowing the Lord for who He is. And so the heart is totally deceitful and corrupt. Not only is your heart that way, let me pause before I go into the... That's why when Christ starts his work in your life, do you know where he starts it? In your heart. He doesn't start to change your outward behavior. Because your problem is not your outward behavior. Those are the symptoms of what's wrong in the heart. What's the point fixing symptoms if the heart is still sinful. That's why in the book of Ezekiel we are taught he will give you a new heart. He will take the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So if you want to think about it in medical analogies, it's not that you go into the cardiac section, they take your heart, they put a couple of valves in, replace something else, and you walk out with a repaired heart. No, when you come to Christ, what you have is taken out and you're given a new heart. Jesus is not in the business of turning bad people into good. Jesus is in the business of resurrecting dead people. In your sins, God sees you as dead. And Christ comes and resurrects a new heart and a new life. That's why it's called good news. Otherwise, it would just be known as reconstructive surgery. And I hope you understand how radical the Christian faith is. It's turning dead people into being alive in Christ. The heart is deceitful. Do you know your mind wars against God? And as I read some scripture, you'll understand that. Listen to Romans chapter 7, verse 23. The writer says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You know what the writer is saying? As I look closely at my heart and mind, 
I feel a war taking place. And my mind is held captive. Do you know by what? The law of sin. You ever feel that? There are things you want to do. You've decided you're going to do the right thing, but then you don't do it. It's not that you don't have a desire. There is a law, there's a ball and a chain in your heart and your mind that will not let you move forward. And that's what the writer says. And in verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Wretched man, wretched woman that I am. And the writer says, I can't save myself. Who is there to save me? And so the mind is at war against us. Let me give you more bad news. But in the bad news, I hope you feel it's not all your fault. It's Adam's fault. You were conceived with a DNA for sinning. And Romans chapter 7 verse 15 says, listen to this and you will understand this in your own life. The writer says, for I do not understand my own actions. You know, if you're truthful with yourself, you'll come to that own conclusion. Spend time with yourself one day. Turn off the TV. Turn off every noise. And look at yourself. Open the word if you can. But allow the Spirit of God and look at how inconsistent you are. And then let me read to you what the writer says. The writer says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Aren't you glad that's in Scripture? We can all say, yeah, that's me. It's written in God's Word. It's talking about me. But the writer says, the very thing I do not want to do, I do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. How important for you and I to know, you know what's the problem with you and I? It's not bad habits. And so you try to change habits. That's not your problem. The problem is the sin that dwells within us, that causes bad habits. And the writer says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. Listen to that again. He says, I have the desire to do what is right. Do you have a desire to do what is right? Listen to what he says next. But not the ability to carry it out. You have a good desire. You have a godly desire. I mean, that's the reason why you're here this morning. You have good and godly desires. What's our problem? Number one, sin. Number two, someone else has to give us the ability to work it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. We have to have a way of distinguishing between who I am and the sin in me. Do yourself a favor. That's the best favor you can do for yourself. Separate yourself from the sin within you. God wants to love you, but God cannot love your sin. 
And that is why I think some of us should lose that chip on our shoulder that we sometimes have such a big problem confessing our sins. Do you know it's biblical to confess your sins one to another? But some of us have so much pride within us that we would not even talk about our sins to people close to us because we feel our image would go down. You have no image, people. Get used to that. You are no one. You can have a lot of spiritual makeup on, but in God's eyes, you are putrid, you're wretched. And how can I say that? Because I'm the same. We're all the same. Stop pretending. Denial is the worst form of death. When you acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner uh, and the odds are stacked against us, then what you can do is something about the sin. And that's where, by this time, you're probably saying, you know, that ball and chain was itself very illustrative. But I have a hook there too. Do you know what's the problem in your and my life? Sin is not only something that's dragging us down, but it's got us hooked so hard. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, let me bring this to a close. Because I have talked much about sin. And folks, the Word of God defines you and I as sinners. It is working death in you. It is not only ruining your eternity, it is ruining your life on earth. That's how cancerous sin is. Every thought in your mind, every desire in your heart is destined towards sin. And so that you would breathe easily, I gave you some teases and I said, it's not your fault, it's Adam's fault. And then to make it easy on you, I said, you know, you want someone else to blame. In conception, you were conceived with their DNA. If I let you go today, at this point of the service, I've done you a disfavor. Because the purpose of telling you all of this is not so that you would now feel, wow, that felt good. Let me go out. I can blame it on other people. Let me take you back to the second part of Romans chapter 5 that I did not read. Even as through one man's disobedience, everyone sinned, so with one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. You got that first part, right? When I said one man's sin, Adam's sin, guess what? We're all being made sinners. That's the bad news. You know what the good news is? With one man's obedience, everyone will be made righteous. Many will be made righteous. Who is that one man? Jesus Christ. Now, I read that too fast. Let me break it down because this is very profound and significant. One man's disobedience made us all sinners. You would think the logical conclusion of that would be, because I'm a sinner, I disobey God in things that I do, I think, and I feel, right? That's what's sin. It's what I think, what I do, what I don't do. It's all based on my actions. My disobedience makes me a sinner. You would think the logical conclusion is, 
Thanks be to Jesus Christ, now I can be a good person who starts to do things of obedience. Right? If it's my disobedience and acts that make me a sinner, the logical conclusion should be, now then, let me start to do things of obedience. That's not what that verse says. It says, through one man's obedience, Jesus Christ's obedience, we are made righteous. Do you know what happens to you and I? Jesus is the one who does the acts of obedience to the Father, and then he takes this big seal of righteousness and he stamps it on you. It's not what you do that makes you righteous. It's who you belong to that makes you righteous. You know, if I were in a black African-American congregation, I would hear things. I want to repeat it to you because to those of you who think that you can work and be good for God, this should just blow your mind off and say, wow, I don't need to do anything to be righteous. You're absolutely right. Jesus is your righteousness. That's why it's good news. One man's obedience. Christ died on the cross. Those who came to him were made righteous through one act of salvation. That is why you don't have an excuse. Remember I said when it comes to your sin... You can blame it on everyone. But now what I want to tell you is you're without excuse. Christ is your righteousness. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous, you remember we said, when we read, the writer said, the things that I want to do I cannot do because I do not have the Ability. In comes Jesus Christ who becomes your ability. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You notice how the, there's no more excuse? Yes, you still can't do anything for yourself. But Christ is able to make you godly. That's the good news. What you can't do for yourself, Christ can do for you make you look extremely good in the sight of God. I did preach a lot about sin this morning. My hope is this realization of your wretchedness, that you cannot do anything for yourself to look good, that without you coming to Christ, you are destined to hell and a wretched eternity should drive you straight into the arms of Christ. You know what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In your sin, you're condemned. You have no hope. You have no ability. You look like a putrid apple with worms coming out of it. But if you're in Christ... Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is no condemnation. You become a child of God. You get all cleaned up by God. And you're presented to the Father, to a holy God, pure and righteous, not because you're a good person, 
because of Christ Jesus. But if you're not aware of your sin and you're denying your sin, you don't need a savior. You don't need cleaning up. And my point is, whether you acknowledge it or not, you are a sinner. How exciting that you can come to live in the freedom. And if you're not a Christian, by a Christian I mean someone who hasn't accepted Christ into your life for the forgiveness of sin, or if you're someone who has been a follower and a disciple of Jesus, I hope you have no excuses for your sin. Whether you're born with an orientation to anger, whatever it be, I don't need to name any sins, but I hope you don't make an excuse. Because Christ has become all of our excuse. And if you say you can do all things in Christ, you can even resist sin and temptation in Christ. Because your righteousness rides on Christ Jesus. We talked about sin, but we talked about Christ, isn't it? Isn't that good news? We need a Savior. We cannot do anything for ourselves, even after you become a Christian. But that is why Christ came into this world. I want to ask you this morning, is there someone here for whom this is bad news and good news? I don't want to dwell on the bad news. We're all part of the bad news. We're all sinners, aren't we? But I want to ask you this morning, is there someone here who needs this kind of a radical transformation that Christ offers you? And you realize that the only way out of your sin is accepting the free gift of God. There's nothing you can work for. It's a free gift. And God wants to make you righteous. And my question to you this morning is, is there anyone who wants this gift? If you want this gift, raise your hand. Amen. Amen. Anyone else who needs God's forgiveness to be righteous in the sight of God? Amen. Tomorrow. Because without the forgiveness of God's righteousness in your life, it's over. It's sick. That's what the Word of God says. If you want to think about it, talk to me later. But I want to present to you Jesus Christ. I want to say, come into his arms. He will embrace you, forgive you, clean you up, and put you on a pedestal before God the Father. Let's pray. Father, this morning, oh, it's good to talk about sin. None of us need to be embarrassed about it because the truth is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But I thank you for Jesus Christ who died on a cross so that we might be resurrected to life in him. I thank you for Jesus Christ who paid the price and has forgiven us so that we might be righteous. And this morning, I know you've worked and spoken to hearts this morning beyond those who may have raised a hand. And my prayer is this morning that we would strive for holiness. Something we cannot do in ourselves, but something that you can do for us. Because your word tells us that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Give us that sense of victory and confidence 
that comes because of believing in a great God. And this morning as we gave off our offerings and tithes, thank you that you're a God who not only gives, but you're a God who receives from us. So accept not only what we have to give, but also ourselves. And we do that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.